As we start our uh, new series today, Luke chapter 13, we're reading the first nine verses. So this is really a continuation of some of the interchange and dialogue that has been going on with, uh, between Jesus and the crowd. So Luke 13, beginning at verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. All those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. For that reading, Eric. Hi, everyone. It's great to have you all here again this evening. If we haven't met, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. As Rod has helpfully introduced, tonight we begin a new series in Luke's Gospel. Uh, the uh, picking up exactly from where we finished off last year in chapter 12. We've called the series Radical, the underlying idea being that God's not calling, Jesus is not calling us to incremental change or slight modifications in the life that we lead. He's laying before us a completely new way of living that's different from what the majority consider to be normal. He's making demands that won't be easy to keep, demands that will require uncomfortable changes, demands that will result in a shift from the status quo. He's confronting us with a need for radical change. I think that as we start this series, the biggest danger for many of us is to be so familiar with Jesus' words that we miss the radical nature of his demands. They're old news, important for other people, but not really that significant for me. Others who perhaps are less familiar with Jesus' words may hear them as a whisper from a long time ago with little or no relevance to them. Either would be a terrible mistake. So I'm going to pray for us as we begin, asking for a fresh insight into what Jesus is asking of us and for the Spirit's enabling to do it. So will you join with me in praying? Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to meet together here in a comfortable, dry place out of the rain uh, with others who, uh, many of who know you and love you, who uh, desire to not only hear Jesus' words, but put them into practice. 
And so as we take a little bit of time to think about uh, not only what Jesus said, but what it means for our lives, we pray uh, that these words won't only affect our intellect, that they won't be added to our knowledge, uh, things that we understand, but that they'd be bringing about change in us so that we would be more like Jesus, more like the people that you've created us to be. We pray these things now in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Repent or perish. Whether displayed on a sign like this one, I know you all want to grab a jacket just like the guy's wearing, uh, or whether the words come directly from the mouth of Jesus, they are strong words calling for the hearer, for the reader, to act. Spoken by Jesus, he backs his listeners into a corner in which there is no third option, just a choice to either obey Jesus or to disobey him. But rather than resulting in changed behaviour, I think the words repent or perish these days mostly result in reinforcing the opinion that the speaker or the one holding the sign is part of the, the loony element within Christianity. I found on, the, on YouTube this week, you can look up a six-minute lesson uh, which shows you step-by-step step how to make your very own sandwich board. Repent or perish. No need to think of clever segues into conversations. No need to develop relationships with anyone. Just slip on your repent or perish sandwich board and get out there in public. Now, just be aware if you do so, you'll probably be called crazy or perhaps these days even be accused of hate speech. In our age of tolerance, any claim demanding a change is ridiculed as both unenlightened and outrageous. How dare you demand that I need to change? And anyway, is repent or perish really the main point of these verses? We need to be careful. In my Bible, it says the title, repent or perish, but we've got to be careful when accepting the titles in our Bible because they can often distract us from other important things in the text. And yet, there the words are, twice. Verse 3, and again in verse 5, repent or perish. It is Jesus' radical demand. But what did Jesus mean by his call to repent, his warning that if you don't, that you'll perish? We're going to look together tonight at an answer to that question in three parts. Firstly, the startling demand to repent in verses 1 to 5. Secondly, we see the surprising people who need to repent in 6 to 9. And then we'll think about, well, what does that repentance mean for us? In my experience, the word repent is one of those jargon words that these days only gets used at church when a government minister does something wrong and there's, there's no talking their way out of it. They don't repent, they resign. Or perhaps they get impeached. When an employee is caught with their hand in the till, they're not given the opportunity of repenting, they're fired. When you hurt your sibling, your friend, your, your wife or your husband, there's an expectation of an apology, not usually of repentance. Caught red-handed, we may feel regret or perhaps embarrassment. But how is repentance different from all of these? To repent has been defined as recognise that you've been going in the wrong direction apologising for doing so, and then turning around to go in the right direction. 
Repentance is more than being sorry or feeling regret. It's a commitment to act in a different way, to stop doing something and start doing its opposite. This is not my experience. Uh, well, maybe it is. If you've gone to a new train station, jumped on the first train that pulls in, oh, I'm going to be late, only to realise that you're heading to Nowra instead of to the city. To be sorry is to tell yourself that you are silly and that you're going to be late for that meeting that you are going to. To repent is to get off at the next station and get back on the right train. Both are necessary, both sorry and repentance, but only repentance fixes the problem. Perhaps in its original setting as Jesus journeyed towards Jerusalem, he was literally calling on people to to change direction, walk with him on a path going in a different direction to what they had set out to go. The sense of turning away from a former way of living and, and living now as Jesus instructs is how anyone becomes a follower of Jesus, how we become Christians. We must repent of running our own lives and ask Jesus to take the reins. But the first appearance of the word repentance in Luke's gospel is John the Baptist calling for fruit in keeping with repentance. We want to see behavior, he wants to see behaviour consistent with a change that's been made. And so repentance is not just the one-time event that starts the Christian life. Whenever we recognise wrong thoughts, attitudes or behaviours creeping back in, repentance is something that we do again and again and again. These are the general meanings of repentance and they, they do apply to this text. But the repentance Jesus is calling for explicitly here also needs to be understood from its context. Although verse 1 is the start of a new chapter, it's the continuation of a point that Luke was making back in chapter 12. If you go back and read, you'll be reminded that Jesus has been giving an incredibly strong warning both to his disciples and the crowd that's come along that was following him. I don't think that angry is the right word, but clearly Jesus is not dispassionately pointing out an insignificant difference of opinion about some minor point. Chapter 12, verse 56. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Jesus is telling them that they have been mistaken and they must start listening to him, obeying him, seeing things from his perspective. Now, some people present Jesus as gentle and inclusive of everyone, and there's some truth to that presentation. Jesus is the Prince of Peace prophesied in Isaiah, the one who won't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smouldering wick. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He's happy to have his feet washed by a woman with a questionable reputation. As we looked at again last week, Jesus is the one who reconciles us to God, who restores peace. Back in chapter 5, this arms open wide acceptance of anyone, particularly the undesirable, has been the trigger for a rebuke by the Pharisees, to which Jesus famously responds in verse 31, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It is crystal clear in the Gospels that no one, was considered beyond the reach of Jesus. All are welcome to come. But chapter 12, 
verse 49 and verse 51 are typical of another side of Jesus that we mustn't minimise or ignore because we love that part that he brings peace. Verse 49, I've come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Verse 51, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Jesus' explicit intention as he teaches is to bring division, not peace. What he says leads to exclusion and separation. Some are in, some are out. Read in the wider context, but we shouldn't conclude that creating division is Jesus' long-term goal. But a very real consequence that is going to take place is that some will accept what Jesus has to say and some will reject it. Jesus' claims will divide. He knows that as he teaches, some will reject what he says. It's not that he hasn't said it clear enough or that some have misunderstood what he's got to say. There is going to be a blatant refusal to accept Jesus' claims, which is why I've called this section the startling demand to repent. In verse 1, Luke is light on detail, so we can't be exactly sure what took place. And no other gospel or history writer fills in the details for us. But what we do know is that a group of Galileans, Jewish people who came from the area where Jesus grew up, up towards the border with Samaria, where Gentiles were mixed together with Jews. There's a people, some people from there who were offering sacrifices. Presumably, this means that the event took place at the temple in Jerusalem. We can safely assume that they were seeking either to apologise for something that had damaged relationship with God, or they were giving thanks to God for a good relationship that was ongoing. And as they're making or preparing to offer these sacrifices, Pilate turns something with good intentions, something that's godly, something that God is pleased with, into an abomination. Some take verse 1 to mean that Pilate has them cut and their own blood is mixed in with the blood of the animal sacrifices. Others suggest that Pilate actually has them killed and sacrificed along with the animals that they had brought as offerings, human and animal sacrifices mixed together. The reality is is that we don't know exactly what happened. Either would have so polluted the Jerusalem temple as to make it unusable until they could offer sacrifices to cleanse it again. Now, as a nation that doesn't offer animal sacrifices, it's hard to feel the impact that this would have had on people who heard about it. At the most sacred moment imaginable, the most polluting thing imaginable takes place. This is mud on white clothes, a burp while you're saying your marriage vows, a rock band. It's not a, that's, it's not a uh, thing that happened, uh, I assure you. Uh, a rock band playing in the choir carriage, only a thousand times worse. Now, an equivalent incident in our day would be front page news. It would have stopped everybody in their tracks. But Jesus doesn't even go into the event. His response is even more startling. Some people would have nodded in agreement if Jesus had only condemned Pilate for his sacrilegious behaviour. How dare he do something so terrible? Others would have approved if Jesus had suggested in his comments that those Galileans certainly got what they deserved, didn't they? But Jesus takes something that happened at a distance 
and he brings the implication up close and personal. Have a look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And before anyone can catch their breath, Jesus provides his own further example. What about that tower in Siloam that fell and killed 18 people? Were those victims more guilty than all the others in Jerusalem, those who didn't die? Jesus sees through the original question and he turns the question back on those asking it. Their underlying assumption is that bad things happen to bad people. They presume that they can watch these events from a distance and conclude that the terrible outcome is a consequence of terrible sin that the victims had committed. They point the finger, as Job's friends had done, concluding that horrific punishment must be evidence that the victims had committed horrific sin. And if you looked at Deuteronomy chapter 28 in your home group, as mine did, as mine did this week, Jesus' questioners had a biblical justification for coming to that conclusion. God has revealed himself as a God of justice. He has standards, expectations. At times in the Old Testament, it was right to ask what sin had been committed that has led to God's punishment. Fresh off their victory at Jericho, defeat by their enemy in Ai was an indicator of Achan's sin. When exiled to Babylon, the prophets pointed out that the only reason that they were there was because they had rebelled against God. God punishes sin. But Jesus' questions show that he's aware of an unspoken assumption. His questioners, or at least some amongst them, believe that nothing bad has happened to them and therefore they must be approved by God. And Jesus warns them just how wrong they are. When something bad happens to someone else, they weren't supposed to pat themselves on the back, taking it as an indication that all was right between them and God. Rather, they were to see it as a gracious opportunity, a gracious warning, letting them repent. And how slow are we to take Jesus' warning? We don't even have to project ourselves back into Jesus' time. Think of the response of some after the fall of the Twin Towers on 9-11 or this year's bushfires. Some Christians were quick to point the finger at our society and interpret the events as God's judgment being poured out on unrepentant sinners. Facebook posts and sermons applied the situation to someone else, telling those out there the other that they need to repent. They looked out the window rather than looking in the mirror. But here, Jesus prioritises our need to take a look at ourselves. When something bad happens to someone else, whether it is deserved judgment or not, consider your own behaviour. Don't tell others what they should be doing. Make sure of your own right response. Now, don't worry, the irony of me standing here telling you how you should be responding isn't lost on me. And so please hear what I'm saying, not as me telling you what to do, but me leading us in all responding to Jesus' demands here. I should see the destruction 
caused by bushfires. And rather than claiming God's displeasure or shaking my finger at the climate change deniers, instead I should ask, am I doing anything that displeases God? When the renowned pastor gets caught in sin, I'm not to identify where he went wrong to demonstrate why I'm somehow better. I should take it as a warning of just how easy it is to fall into sin and repent of areas in my own life that needs an overhaul. When a tidal wave or an earthquake hits, when another shooter goes on a rampage as in Thailand yesterday, it's not merely a natural disaster, not merely somebody gone rogue. I need to respond to it as a warning from God to me to turn from my sin. Any suffering should make us aware of God's mercy towards us and we need to receive it with thanks. In verses 6 to 9, Jesus tells a little story about a fig tree to develop his startling demand to repent or perish. Parables, little stories by their very nature, both reveal and conceal. They are stories that illustrate seemingly to make the point easier to grasp. But despite their clarity, If people are unwilling to listen, if they refuse to accept that Jesus could be speaking to them, then even a clear message can be missed. As the parable of the fig tree flows straight on from the conversation that was had, and its message so closely parallels the earlier message, it's clear that Jesus is underlining who are the surprising people that need to repent. But for us to understand who Jesus' target is, we need to know that both the fig tree and the grapevine were used regularly in the Old Testament as symbols for Israel. A shorthand way, a picture that everyone recognised, was a picture of Israel. This is God's people. Jesus uses a well-known picture to say that Israel is not producing the fruit it should be. And as a result, the owner has had enough. The man who looks after the vineyard requests just a little bit more time to to have one last chance. If it produces fruit, great. That's what the fruit tree is there for. If not, well, it's had its last chance and we'll cut it down. And while a veiled warning, because it's told in a story, for those with ears to hear, Jesus is saying, this is your last chance. Jesus is giving the people of God the best fertiliser they could possibly receive. Words of life that if taken in and lived out will lead to change. Now at our house, uh, Christy is the gardener for very, very good reasons. Uh, For a number of years, we've had a dragon fruit plant. Dragon fruit's a a fruit that's famous throughout Asia, uh, absolutely delicious, spectacular looking. Um, But the dragon fruit plant is not very spectacular at all. It looks rather like a spindly cactus. Over the years that we've owned this dragon fruit plant, Christy has watered it, she's fertilised it, she's looked after it. We've put in a support so that it can grow up because it's a bit floppy and it'll just fall over if it's not there. And this year, it has finally flowered. Nine o'clock one night, this flower popped out and by the morning it was gone. But it means that there's fruit on the way. That's the goal for which all of Christie's work has been done. Now, my guess is that even if there was no flower, no fruit produced, 
then we would have given it some more time because we're so longing for this fruit. If you go and buy from Woolies, it's so expensive, grow your own. But eventually, if this little cactus doesn't produce fruit, then there would have come a time when my patience would have (laughs) run out and I would have pulled it out of the ground to use the space for something that does produce fruit. That's what the ground's there for. The surprise in Jesus' story is that the Jews, the people of God that he chose, the ones for whom repentance has been a regular part of their life, are called upon to repent. And then they're warned that this is their last chance. Turn from how you're living and live a way that pleases God, otherwise you're going to get cut down. And with those words, the parable finishes. Did the, did the disciples wonder if Jesus had perhaps pushed a little bit too hard this time, saying something that was just a little bit too provocative? Given that, people were part of the crowd, that they were interested, showing their interest by coming to find out more of what Jesus had to say. Were words like this going to push people away, people who hadn't yet fully committed? Did the crowd themselves object that hey, we're already regulars at the temple. Repentance for sin was already a part of their daily practice, daily prayers, festivals, going up to the temple were all opportunities by which they repented of sin. Why was Jesus demanding something that they were already doing? What was Jesus claiming that they were missing, that they were not doing appropriately? Did the opposition sneer at Jesus, smug in their self-confident, self-confident assumption that their nationality and religious observance already made them okay with God? We don't need to listen to what this Jesus has got to say. Luke doesn't tell us what the reaction was this time, which is probably an indicator that the following chapters, which we're going to look at over the coming weeks, record Jesus fertilising, watering, and waiting patiently for fruit to appear. What we'll go on to study in the coming weeks is Jesus' words intended to produce change, to bring about fruit in our lives. But as he does so, we've all been put on notice. Will we receive his words and produce fruit, or will we reject them? And so we have to ask, what is this command of Jesus, repent or perish, What does it mean for us? Remember that Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. Some of those with him are already his disciples. They were committed to following Jesus, to understanding and living out his words. Now, they obviously didn't always get it right, and repentance would have remained a regular part of their life. For many of us, we too have committed to following Jesus, and repentance remains an ongoing necessity. As the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we need to acknowledge our wrong, be sorry for it, and commit again to walking in Jesus' footsteps, empowered by the Spirit. To repent rather than perish means that we recognise our ongoing dependence upon God. We know that we're not better than others, but we are saved from perishing despite our ongoing inclination to still do things our own way. Others in this section of the gospel were part of the crowd. They were interested in what Jesus had to say, amazed at the miracles that he performed. Luke records that they were even delighted 
at Jesus' teaching. They were positive towards Jesus, going along with him while it was convenient or enjoyable or exciting. But they hadn't committed to go wherever he leads. And there are possibly some here that are similarly warm towards Jesus. You think that Jesus did some great things, that it's beneficial to listen to what Jesus teaches. But you haven't yet decided to really follow him regardless of where he leads. You're still calling the shots. So long as Jesus agrees with you, then you'll go along with him. But when he makes a radical call, you balk at where it might lead, what it, what it might cost you. As we read this passage, the message is repent. You're thinking the wrong way about Jesus. There is no better time than tonight to admit, if we haven't submitted to Jesus, that we need to, that we long for him to save us. He offers to save, but he demands to have the final say in how we live our lives. Finally, amongst the group that were with Jesus, there were some who opposed him. They were living out the saying, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies even closer. They heard Jesus' words, they saw his actions, but they were only interested in watching him in the hope of catching him doing wrong. They had predetermined that nothing Jesus could do or say would change their mind about his importance, about his significance to their own life. And even for them, Jesus still held out open arms and said, come to me, repent or perish. And so regardless of which category we find ourselves in tonight, the question remains, are we going to repent or perish? I'm going to lead us in a prayer of repentance and I invite you to pray along with me. Let's pray. God, we come before you as a holy God, conscious that at many times and in many ways we don't match up to your standards. Like a fruitless spindly cactus. Our lives can be not much to look at, a long way from what you designed us to be. We thank you tonight for your mercy that you warn us to turn from fruitless lives. Thank you for Jesus' warning here to not be people that look through the window, looking out at others who need to repent, but instead that we would be people who look in the mirror. We frequently hear of bad things happening if we listen to the news, we've heard of disasters that have taken place, read emails, things that have taken place to people who are at a distance from us. May these things not just be background noise. May they not encourage indifference in us or even condemnation of others. But instead, may suffering provoke us to see you extending yet another opportunity to us to receive your mercy. May we be ever-repenting people trusting in Jesus alone. If there is anyone here tonight who until now has been holding off from throwing themselves upon your mercy, please enable them to realise the desperateness of their situation. May they acknowledge their desperate need for Jesus. May they accept his death in their place and so be given life rather than perishing as we all deserve for rejecting your ways. Thank you for calling us to a radical change. Please keep making the change in each one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.